0: Hopefully, you have your Bibles. We're going to begin a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, the Epistle to the Hebrews. And so, if you have your Bible, or if it's on your phone, uh, you now have permission to use your electronic device uh, to turn to or turn on to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And so, it's in the New Testament. You have the, the pastoral epistles, you have 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, then you have the small letter to Philemon. And then we come to Hebrews. And so we're gonna read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible, please let me know. We have uh, lots of Bibles here that, that we have bought as a church for the, the explicit purpose of giving them away. And so if you have a neighbor, or if you have a friend, or if you're here and you don't have a Bible, talk to me, talk to Will. Um, we would love to provide you with that Bible um, because we're, we're going to be reading it and studying it together Um, each and every Sunday, as the Lord wills, um, as we gather together. So we're gonna be, we'll read that in a second so you can turn there and hold your spot. But before we do, I I wanna set the the stage for our passage. And so as I set the stage, what I wanna do is I wanna go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to the beginning, because there, in the Garden of Eden, in in paradise, in Genesis chapters one, two, and three, something happened, and recognizing what happened all the way back in Eden is going to help set the stage for the first four verses in the book of Hebrews. And so, if you remember, maybe, maybe you've never heard, so let me, let me tell you back in Genesis 1 and 2, God, there's, there's nothing, and God creates everything out of nothing. And He creates the first human couple, the, the first man followed by the first woman, and He places them in paradise, in a garden called Eden. And in Eden, all is well. God creates and God provides for this first man, Adam, and this first woman, Eve. And and in this garden, God satisfies their every want and need. In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, that first couple lacks no thing. And what's more, especially for our purposes today, God actually speaks to them and he tells them all that they need to know. Adam and Eve receive revelation from God. Even from the beginning, we'll see that God never leaves his people ill-equipped for what he calls them to. He provides for them, and he provides for them his word. All the way back in Genesis, it began. And it is into this context of perfection, of, of paradise, of serenity, that we encounter a crafty serpent. And the crafty serpent steps onto the stage. In Genesis chapter three, in the first words, And all of scripture from any created thing recorded in scripture are from this crafty serpent. And the words from the crafty serpent to this first couple who who God has revealed himself to, who have been provided for by God, the first words of this serpent to them are, did God really say? In other words, the crafty serpent slithers his way. He's not slithering yet. He's gonna lose his legs later. So he walks in and he says, are you sure that you heard God correctly? Are you sure his voice wasn't muttered Are you sure something wasn't wasn't lost in translation? Did God really say that you couldn't eat anything in this entire garden? Did he really say that that every single one of these trees in this entire garden is off limits? Did he really say that? And of course, we as as careful readers, we recognize the manipulation at work there. God never prohibited every tree. He prohibited one tree. But the serpent from the beginning cast doubt on what God had clearly said. And the first woman with the first man right there beside her took a plunge into the ocean of unbelief, of disbelief. And it started there in Genesis chapter three. And we all with them have been swimming in that ocean of disbelief, not believing what God has said ever since. And the plunge was into a world where God couldn't be trusted so that doubt and distrust and denial now crowd the minds of God's created beings Distrust and denial and doubt are how the created ones receive the clear communication from their cosmic creator. And so I, I read this week that there's a famous English, probably one of the greatest English poets in all of English language, a, a, a man named George Herbert. Listen to how he puts it, referring back to what we've just seen. He says, You placed us in paradise until we sold our glorious, gracious God for an apple. He continues, brand it on our foreheads forever for an apple we once lost our God. Brand it on our foreheads forever for an apple we once lost our God. What a powerful truth for a piece of fruit we, in our first parents, lost our God. Now, thankfully, the loss of God is not the end of the story. In fact, Herbert, in that poem, continues, but you, O Lord, are patience and pity, sweetness and love. Therefore, we're not consumed. You've exalted your mercy above all things, and you've made our salvation our glory and not our punishment. So, so the loss is not the final word. The point of Genesis 3 is not the loss. That's not the end of the story, but we do, what we do see in Genesis 3, and that's why I've started here, is because we see a point that proves to be a pattern that continues through the rest of the story of scripture. And the point, the pattern, is that God's people refuse to listen to God's clear communication. That's a pattern we see beginning in Genesis three, but it continues on. God's people, those under his care, those who are benefactors of his grace, often refuse to heed his clear word, his revelation. They don't listen, they don't obey. And it's not just Adam and Eve, it's, it's numerous line of people that would follow. In fact, if you're, if you're going through the Bible reading plan that, that we as a church put out, now we've been, you've, you've been in Jeremiah the past several weeks, and it's all over Jeremiah. In fact, as I was reading Jeremiah, this phrase, this, this category of, of the voice of the Lord, it's all over, where Jeremiah says, the people haven't listened to your word. The Lord says, Jeremiah, go speak the words. Speak my words. Tell them to obey my words. These words of the covenant, or, Jeremiah, my people have turned aside and, and they're going to be forsaken. And so, so, so the Israelites there under the prophecy of Jeremiah, they are refusing to obey. They've turned aside. But it's not just Jeremiah who confronts the, the people. It's every prophet. It's the vast majority of the kings and the good judges in Israel, who remind the people to, to keep the word. And, and the majority of the kings and judges refuse. They, they lead the people away. And so it's the pattern that runs throughout the entire story, which is what sets the stage for Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Because in these verses that we're going to read, we're going to see that God has spoken a, a final word. No more prophets. No, 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 no more judges or kings. He has spoken once and for all. And this, this word that, that God has spoken is, is the climax of God's revelation to his people. And we'll see that, that this final word, this climactic revelation has come not through a prophet or a priest or a king, but through the Supreme Son, through the glorious Christ. And, and so as we, as we look here at these verses, I want us to behold the glorious Christ this morning. So follow along. I'm going to read verses one through four of Hebrews chapter one, and then we'll work through this passage together. So Hebrews chapter one, beginning in verse one, I'm going to read through verse four. The author of Hebrews writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quote, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, that is the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, that is the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, this is your word and we are in need of your word this morning. And so we, we come to this word expecting you to speak and we come to this word appreciating, thankful, grateful that you have spoken and so would you, would you cause us, would you enable us, would you help us to heed the word? Most specifically, would you help us to heed the word of Christ, the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior? And so speak to us this morning through your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we look at these first four verses, Uh, this is all we're gonna look at. And so so there's gonna be two points, there's two main ideas, but but these first four verses in in your English translation it's probably a couple of sentences, at least two, but it should be noted that in the original, in the Greek New Testament, these four verses, they're not several sentences, but instead it's a single sentence, a single multi-clause sentence that's built around the main clause, which is God has spoken, And so that's the point of these first four verses, and he's spoken through his glorious son. And so the two main ideas, it breaks up very clearly, is first, the main idea is that God is a God who speaks, and second, that God, as the God who speaks, has spoken finally in his son. And so I want us to recognize the the glorious Christ, the nature of this son, because the son has communicated the heart of the father and has accomplished salvation for God's people. And so in Christ, we've received the final word. And so our outline is simply gonna be first, the first point we'll look at is the God who speaks, which is in verses one and halfway through, or just beginning, just into verse two. And then second point we'll look at is the son who reveals, which is the rest of verse two, and verse three and verse four. So, so let's start there. First point, the God who speaks, beginning in verse one. And so if you see that the, the, this first verse Actually, the first two verses, there's a contrast that drives how we ought to understand this. And the theme is God speaking. And so God has spoken. That's, what, that's, what, that's the foundation of these contrasts. Yeah, we'll look at the contrast in a second. But first, as we read verse one, long ago at many times, God spoke to our fathers. And in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The fact is that God is a God who speaks, it's always been the case. God is a God who reveals himself, and we, we ought not take that for granted. He doesn't leave himself without testimony. He never has and he never will. Which we just ought to recognize the significance of that. Friend, brother, sister, we are not left in the dark. We're not grasping around, feeling it and saying, "Well well, why am I here? What's the purpose? Well, what is all this about?" God has revealed himself, and as is in every case, it's the case that revelation is dependent upon the one who does the revealing, which means we don't know God apart from the extent to which he reveals himself. We are at God's mercy to know him. If God didn't reveal himself to us, his fallen creatures, we could not know him, period, end of story. But the reality is, as we look at verses one and two, God has revealed himself. That's why you read Psalm 19 throughout the, the beginning of this service. That, that psalm is about God revealing himself in creation and in his word. He has revealed himself. What one, one author puts it this way, revelation occurs because God wills it to occur. We do not control the process Man cannot decide that he will embark on such and such a process in the sure knowledge that it will end, that in the end he will compel God to speak. God speaks when and how and as he chooses. This is why, just at the outset, any philosopher or, or any neighbor or any family member who makes claims about, about purpose and, and meaning and truth in this world, but who does so remove from God's revelation, that person really cannot know anything at all. At least in terms of ultimate purpose and meaning and truth, we, we can't figure it out on our own. We are in need of God's revelation, but the good news is God has revealed himself. Friend, we can't make sense of things apart from God's revelation, but the good news, the amazing news for us in these first two verses is simply that God has spoken. And this, this revelation, this speaking, has reached its climax in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And in fact, that climax is the point to be made from these first two verses, as, and, and we see this, this climax by the contrast. And so yes, God speaks, but the author wants us to know that what he has most recently said is, is the most important thing, and he does it by, by, by noticing the contrast. So notice the contrast between the times of God speaking. So verse one, long ago God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days he's spoken. And so the contrast is between long ago and these last days. The author is making a distinction between the old and the now. And so when he says long ago, think think Old Testament, think Moses, think the law, think the prophets. That, that's what's intended to be understood by, by long ago. Think the old covenant the old way of God's people organizing themselves. And the the contrast to that, the author says, is yes, he did speak then and there and in that way. But now, in these last days, there's a new way, a new covenant, a new way for God's people to organize themselves. And the the, the rest of the book of Hebrews is, is unpacking what God has said here and now through what he said through his son. And so there's a contrast between the times, but there's also a contrast between the recipients. So, so, or, or who, the the means, or, or, or the modes of communication. There's the contrast between the many. Long ago, in many times, in many ways, but, but now he's spoken to us by his son. That's singular. There's a one way. Long ago, wasn't one prophet? Wasn't one way of communicating? Instead, God's God's speech in old old covenant under the old covenant in the old testament. Came in many installments, in many modes, whether it was visions or dreams or riddles and, or, or clear mouth to mouth self disclosures. Think about Abraham, Moses, and, and all the prophets. Speech was diverse in many ways and at many times, which is contrasted with these last days in which God has spoken to us one time in one way. That's his point. The piecemeal, multiform character of God's speech to Israel differed from his singular word spoken in the Son in these last days. There's a contrast. Third contrast is the recipients of the speaking. Long ago, he spoke to our fathers. These last days, he's spoken to us. It's come to us, not to our fathers, the author of Hebrews is saying, which is going to be crucial to his audience, but it's also, we can't miss, crucial to us because we are not removed from these last days. We are living in the last days. And I don't say that because of a a virus that's going on. I say that because ever since the the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we have been in the last days. And so these last days that the author is talking about, we are included in that. And so as we read this this letter, as we study this, the the application is gonna be directly to us because we are included in these last days. And so we're in the same boat as the original hearers, which will go a long way in helping us understand and respond accordingly, and then the last contrast made in these first two verses is that the, long ago he spoke by the prophets, last days by his son. And so he's doing something here at the outset in, in creating these contrasts that, that's going to govern his argument throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. He's establishing a truth that will serve as a foundation for the rest of the book. And it's, it's a focus on the word that has come through the son, what he has said through the Son is, is superior, it's better, it's more important than all that he said prior. He wants to highlight the significance, the superiority, superiority the betterness of Christ. In fact, a common refrain throughout the book of Hebrews is Christ is better or superior over and over. He's going to bring up all these. So next week, we'll see angels. Then we'll see Moses. Then we'll see the priests, Then we'll see the, the sacrifice. He's better. He's better. He's better. And at the outset, he's starting the, the letter to say, this is the final word, and it surpasses anything that's come before. So we better listen to the better Christ. Because this final word is what God has spoken clearly to us. In fact, the point is that a fundamental turning point has been reached as God speaks climactically and definitively and finally through his son. The argument of of this book throughout will be that Christ is the goal and the ultimate meaning of all that preceded. So all that came before, all the revelation, was leading to the revelation of the son. And so God has spoken to us in these last days by his son, and so, so to answer this question here at the outset, what, what is the word that Christ has spoken? Is there one specific sermon that Jesus, that we ought to listen to, or, or one parable, or, or one gospel? No, the point is that, not, not, not one point of revelation that's come to us through the Son, but instead, the point is that the word that's been spoken is the whole of the incarnation. Now, everything that Christ did, his, his life and his death and his resurrection was a, a word that was spoken, that has been spoken to us. This final word is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son. And it is the final word because everything was leading up to this. This was the right time where the Son was revealed. And this Son, because of his identity and because of what he does, he reveals God to us in a way that had never been done before, in a way that could never have been done before. In this Son, we have the final word, which leads us to our second point the rest of verse two into verse four, where we see the identity and the work of this son who's been revealed. Okay, so let's look secondly at the son who reveals. And the focus here, again, it's not on the what, it's not the substance, but but it's the focus on the who. Who is this son who has been made manifest to us? So so we're gonna focus on the identity of the son. The who is the focus. And as we look at the second section, the the logic is, is pretty simple to follow, Logic is simply this, God has always spoken to his people, and now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And this speaking, this word, is unlike any word that has ever come before. And this revelation that's come through the son is final and unique and will end all need for anything further. And it is so, this is the case because of the identity of the one by whom it has come, and so the author wants to highlight the one who has sent the message. I mean, think about when you, when you get a message from someone, their identity dictates how you receive it. So, so your cell phones, you, you see someone calling. Maybe you don't want to answer, right? Their identity has something to say about that. Or, or maybe you think, I haven't heard from them in ages. I, I have to answer. Or if, if you, see un, or you see restricted or unavailable, maybe I don't want to talk to them. Or if you get a letter, right? The identity of the person communicating helps you understand how to receive it. And so what the author's going to do in verse two and three is going to say, here is the son who has spoken. So you better listen because here's who he is. And to highlight this identity of the son, he lists off seven affirmations or seven facts about this son. And there's no question after he lists off the first five that the supremacy of this son is the purpose of his listing these off? Because in these seven phrases, especially the first five, we get the true nature of the Son. We see the incomparable superiority of this Son. And so let's walk through these, these phrases here at the second part of verse 2 into verse 3 and 4. And so this son, we're going to see his identity, he he is unlike anyone that has ever come before. He's greater than Moses and the angels and the prophets and the priests. We're going to see this identity that this son is none other than God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. We're going to see his deity, his deity, his divinity. This is fully God in flesh that came in the son. And so we're gonna see that this is unlike any man that's ever walked the earth because it is God in the flesh. And so he wants wants us to know that. And then in in verse four, the second point that he emphasizes is the work of the son. And so we'll see that when we get there. (coughs) But first, first phrase, the son is the one whom he appointed the heir of all things. You see that there, the, the beginning of verse two. In the last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Not Not hair, but heir, the the one who inherits all things. And so this first affirmation is often understood in light of Psalm 2. You don't have to go there, but in Psalm 2, listen listen to what the psalmist in Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8 says. We read, the Lord said to me, so here's the psalmist talking, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your inheritance or your possession And so in Psalm 2, we have this this foreshadowing of this this son of David who says, I am the son of God, right? There's this this Davidic king who's going to be given all the nations as his inheritance to rule over them. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, this son is the one who's the promised Davidic king from Psalm 2 who would receive as, as his inheritance not only the nations but all of the earth, This one would receive all creation as his possession. And so the author of Hebrews, and, and he'll come back to this in the next chapter, and then in chapter eight, and then again, I think in 11. But his point is that at the conclusion of his work, after his death and resurrection, Jesus the Son has been appointed by the Father, heir of all things. Now we'll see with this very next phrase that in one sense, as the divine son, as fully God, Jesus doesn't come into the possession of something he doesn't already have. So people read this and say, well, what is this talking about, right? If, if he is fully God, part of what it means to be God is to, to lack nothing. And so people say, well, how does, he, how does he become, how is he appointed the heir of all things? Maybe if he's fully God, he doesn't lack anything, but the point here is that this this human side, this this messianic divinity, he's the messianic son, he's the promised king, son of David, the one who humbled himself, took on flesh, and as the promised Messiah, as a result of his suffering, he has been exalted and is the heir of all things. He's been given all authority. Now I know this might be a little confusing, But as we continue to work through Hebrews, we're gonna see that our author will continually point us back to the Old Testament in terms of categories and types and shadows. And as he does, he does so simply to say that Jesus is better. And so whatever you wanted to think about, whatever the Israelites wanted to think about in terms of the Davidic king of Psalm 2 who's gonna rule the world, world, Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. He is the, the ultimate son of David, son of God, who is Messiah and king. He's been appointed heir of all things. But second, the phrase used is through whom also God created the world. And here's irony, isn't it? Not only is he the heir of all things, in the second phrase, we we learn that he's also the creator of all things. And so he inherits what he created. This son is the agent of creation. He's the one through whom this entire world was created, or as one modern translation puts it, I think, that, I think this does a good job of capturing the, 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 the point here. By his son, God created the world in the beginning and it will all belong to the son at the end. Right? This is the son who is the, the heir of all things, but also who created all things. And this role of, of Christ in creation, it's not foreign to the New Testament. Think about John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And he was in the beginning with God. Verse three of John one, all things were made through him. And without him, that is this word, without him was not anything made that has been made. So this word, this son is the agent of creation. So that he is the source of of all that has come into being. Or Colossians one, verse 16, the apostle Paul says, for by him, that is by Christ, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, Paul would say. So, so this idea, this son, this final word is the eternal word who has never not been. He was with God in the beginning. He was, was God from the beginning and he was the source through which all that has come into being has come into being. This is the divine identity of this son. He created the world and this creation language is something that is true only of God himself. There are things that are true of the son that can only be true of the son if he is fully God and that's what the author intends for us to understand. There's no mere man, this is God in the flesh. And if him being being the one through whom the world has created doesn't convince you of the divinity of the son, the next two phrases make that point even more obvious. So the third and fourth phrases, we consider these together because they make the same point. The son is the radiance of the glory of God. The son is the exact imprint of his nature, that is of God's nature. And so these phrases make the point that the son is the perfect expression of the father. I mean, Jesus himself would say that if anyone has seen me, he's seen who? The father. To see the son is to see the father. This language so strongly affirms the full deity of the son, it's actually recorded that in church history, there's this group of theologians called the Arians, and who their leader was a man named Arius, who denied the full deity of Jesus. He said, no, he's just a created being. He wasn't fully God. And so the Arians, when they read these verses, they say, that can only mean one thing. Therefore, we don't accept Hebrews. It's not, of the, it's not part of our Bible, because they recognize that what is being said when this son this is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God, when that is said, what is clearly intended to be communicated is that this word, this son, is none other than the Lord in flesh. The Lord himself, the second person of the tr- Trinity. And so the author of Hebrews is communicating as strongly as possible that this final word is the full and clear, perfect revelation of the very glory and nature of God. And what we're seeing here is, as the author of Hebrews is beginning this book is that the one, this Jesus Christ has revealed God. He has made God known. You wanna know what God is like? Look to Jesus, that the glory and nature of God has been made known to us, to fallen men and women in such a way that had never been done before. It was a mystery that has now been revealed and is the, it is the identity of this one that establishes the way in which we ought to receive this final word. In the son, we have the perfect picture, the crystal clear revelation, the full disclosure of God himself. Listen to one commentator explain, in order for the son to be the kind of direct, authentic, and compelling expression of the father described in these phrases, for him to be the radiance of God's glory and the impress of his very essence, He must participate somehow in the being of God itself. That is, he must himself be divine to accomplish the wonderful mission described here. Our author, talking about the author of Hebrews, would have us conclude that the son is of the same order of existence as God and so with God over against all else that exists. This is not just another Davidic king. It's not just another one in the line of prophets or priests. This is the Lord himself. And he continues the fifth phrase. He, this word, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only was Jesus present and active at the creation of the universe, it's also true that Jesus continues upholding the universe by the word of his power. I mean, if you have the NIV, it says sustaining all things by his powerful word. I mean, he not only is the agent of creation, he's the agent of sustenance. He sustains all that we see. This whole universe is sustained by this son. This is what Colossians 1, verse 17, that passage. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is the son. This is what he does. This is who he is. This is his identity. And as we think about the the magnificence of this deity, of this divine person in in creation and upholding the universe and and the representation, the clear representation of God to us, we can't forget that this is the one who humbled himself, who took on flesh, became like us. He became became obedient to the will of his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what is almost unbelievable is that in this upholding the universe, This sustaining of all things, this has been the activity of the son since the creation of all that has come into being, which means that as he's walking around the streets of Nazareth, as he's ministering in Jerusalem, in Galilee, as he's healing the sick, teaching the masses, confronting and rebuking the religious leaders, as he's teaching the disciples in all of those times, he was also actively upholding the universe, ensuring its existence and its progression towards its intended end. I mean, even on the cross, we have the suffering servant whose physical life is being taken from him, but we also have the eternal son by whom the universe was created and by whose word the universe was continuing to exist. What a, what a majestic word. What a majestic son who has been revealed to us. This is the one through whom God has spoken to us. And so after soaring to the heights of divinity, after establishing the the deity of this son, the author moves in these last two phrases, the sixth and the seventh phrases, there's this transition. So, So we're at these heights, but then look at in verse three, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, period. Transition, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. So so it's almost as if these last two verses come from out of nowhere. So so we're talking about these heights, this this divine word, this divine son. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Where does that come from? And the point that, that Hebrews is making in this context, at the outset of this letter, It's precisely the point he wants to make. It's the identity of the son, yes, but it's also the work and status of the son. You see, the book of Hebrews, it doesn't end after this this talk of the majesty, of of the divinity of him. That's not all it's about. It's not about the supremacy of the son in an abstract way. Instead, the supremacy of the son, the deity of the son is proclaimed because it's the deity of the son that makes the sacrifice of the son that much more significant. He is the son who was crucified. The son who was slaughtered by his people. It's not just some man, some some teacher, some good moral person. This is God in the flesh who, who submits to crucifixion by his own people. And so it's his identity, his unique identity that enables him to accomplish the unique work that he had been sent to accomplish. If he's not God in the flesh, his death on the cross does not affect What it does, in fact, affect as the sun. As one commentator explains, our author is not content simply to mark off the incomparable character of the sun against all others and all else, as he's done in the first five phrases. He wants also to get to one of the main points of the epistle, which is the atoning work of the sun. For this too is vitally a part of and dependent upon the son's uniqueness. It is his identity, the uniqueness of who he is, that enables him to accomplish the uniqueness of the work, of his sacrifice on behalf of his people. And so look at the last two phrases. The sixth one, after making purification for sin, seventh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so here we get, we get to the heart of the finality of the revelation that's come through the son. This son, this divine son who was sent for a very specific task Right, a task that was preceded by many types and shadows. Right? But, but the sun was sent for a task that was once for all in its nature, a task that rendered any future word unnecessary because of what he was going to accomplish. And this task, in the words of Hebrews 1:3, was making purification for sins. That's why he came. That's the work he was sent to accomplish to, to make a purification for sins or another translation or more literally, a cleansing of sins. And the assumption here at the outset, which he's gonna work out through the rest of this, this letter, is that this son has done it. He's finished it. He has made a purification for sins. And so as we read the, the, this phrase, the sixth phrase, this, we, we recognize that the son, the, the son, Jesus Christ, was sent on a mission for a purpose, And the accomplishment of that mission, the fulfillment of that purpose has resulted in a cleansing of sins, a forgiveness of sins. And so this son who is the heir of all things, the son who created the universe, the son who's the radiance of the glory of God, the son who's the exact imprint of his nature, the son who upholds the universe by the word of of his power, this son is the one who laid down his life for the sheep. This is the son who is the spotless lamb slain to take away the sins of the world. This son is very God of very God who was crucified and it was done in order to cleanse you and to cleanse me from our sins. How insignificant we are for that act of sacrifice. But this is what God has said to us. This is why he sent his son. This is why he has spoken to us in these last days and it was only by the unique son that this work was possible. And the good news of the book of Hebrews, the good news for us here today is that God sent his son for this work and he accomplished it. The cry of Christ on the cross is, it is finished. Which means he has made purification for sins. And in so doing, the son has accomplished something which no one else could ever achieve. No, no priest, no sacrifice, no prophet, no king. No one could do it, but the son has done it. He's accomplished something that could not be accomplished by anyone else. And the forgiveness that he has won is permanent because of who he is. Because the barrier between God and mankind has been removed And this sacrifice, this cleansing of sins results in entry into the very presence of God himself for those whose sins have been removed and cleansed by the sacrifice of the son. And the final phrase, as a result, the result of his making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which again communicates it's finished, it's paid in full, the son. He suffered, he died, he was buried And he raised again, as as the result, he has been exalted, he's ascended, he's been vindicated and placed at the right hand of majesty on high, the seat of authority and power. And he sits down. He's not standing because he's gonna be called back for for another mission. He was sent once and for all and he accomplished it and he sits down. There's no need for any further work. And so the point here is the exaltation and the authority of the son in the place he now occupies. This is what, what, what Paul would say in Philippians 2. And as the God-man, this, this, this man, this, this, this word, this eternal son, who though he was in the form of God, though he is fully God, he didn't count equality with God, something to be utilized or taken advantage of, but instead he emptied himself by adding, taking on the form of a servant. And this one takes the form of the servant. He's born in the likeness of sinful men. He's really a man fully man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even humiliating death on a cross. Therefore, Philippians 2.9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. And so he doesn't cease to be God. He doesn't become something he wasn't, but now he receives a position of authority that's the result of his suffering as the God-man who accomplishes the salvation he's been sent for which is why verse 4 makes the point he's greater than any angel because we'll look at this this will be next week's sermon but but you may think well he's a man and in the spiritual realm there's angels and so how is a human better than the angels he's going to say he's not just a mere man he's a man who's been exalted to a position of all authority and all power because he is a unique man who is fully god and fully man which we will look at next week but here with that we come to an end of this first introductory introductory sentence of the book of Hebrews. In these first verses, we see that this movement from, from creation to the son's work of redemption to present him as the human high priest and the king of our salvation who bears the name of God himself, a human who's now superior to angels because the eternal son has become the eternal man, which means God has come in the flesh to do what only he can do, which is to accomplish cosmic redemption, reconciliation, and rule. And so this is the son. As we think about it, we started in Genesis 3, and as we we think back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled, it could have been the end of the story. It wasn't, but it could have been. After the rebellion of of Adam and Eve, the, the promise, there was a promise, a communication of hope from God, It's called called the first gospel or the proto-eangelion, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. And this is a promise of hope, but the promise doesn't come from God to man. Do you remember how it comes? There in Garden of Eden, God makes a promise that comes in the form of a curse upon the serpent. Cursed are you. Here's what's gonna happen to you, serpent. The seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And that was back there in Genesis chapter three. And the promise, the seed of the woman that's going to destroy, that's going to crush the head of the serpent, was the promise that has carried through the entire storyline of scripture that has been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. That's been fulfilled in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the final word from the Father. No other future promises. Christ has come and has conquered and has been raised victorious. And all those who put their faith in him will be with him forever victorious over sin and death, never to be destroyed again, never to die again. But instead with him forever in a place far greater than the first Eden. Perfect fellowship with one another, perfect fellowship with God the Father loving one another, rejoicing in the lamb, worshiping the God who has made that all possible. And so in the sun, we have the clear, full, final revelation of God. And that that word has come to us through the Son. And we would do well to heed that word, to listen to and to trust the sun, which Lord willing, we'll we'll hear over and over again throughout this letter to the Hebrews. So so let let me pray uh, as we close